Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. You may not know it, but around the county we've had some helpers in the last few years. You've probably heard of AmeriCorps, a service programme to tackle the country's most pressing challenges, and a new part of this programme is Grizzly Corps, focused on climate resiliency positions across rural communities in California. In Mendocino County, we've been supported by two of these fantastic fellowship positions. One right here at the UC Hopland Research and Extension Centre, and tonight we'll actually hear from the other position, and that is Katie Smith, who has been supporting Mendocino County Fire Safe Council and the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District. We'll find out about the projects that Katie has been working on, including community planning for wildfire and carbon farm planning. And we'll follow our conversation with Katie with a little more about just one possible part of a carbon farm plan, hedgerows, with the Hopland Research and Extension Centre Director, John Bailey. But let's get started with Katie. I started by asking Katie to describe what Grizzly Corps is. Welcome Katie Smith to the Ecology Hour. It is fantastic to have you on this evening. Um, and Katie, if you wouldn't mind, let's start um, by just understanding a little bit more. You've been living in Mendocino County for about a year now. What brought you to the county and, and what's the position, the Grizzly Corps position that you are currently working in? Sure, yeah. And thank you for having me on here. It's fun to be here. Yeah, so I came to Mendocino County about a year ago, like Hannah said. Um, and what brought me here was Grizzly Corps. Uh, I was hired for a position serving with the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District and the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council. Um, and Grizzly Corps is a really cool, unique AmeriCorps program that is a partnership with uh, the UC Berkeley Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment. Um, and its whole mission really is to increase the capacity of the workforce that's looking to solve climate, uh, climate impact. Um, so its focus is, is both in the sustainable agriculture and the sustainable forest management fields. Um, and so the position that I had kind of spanned both fields with those two organizations. Um, yeah, it's been a really lovely experience. What was it that attracted you to this Grizzly Corps position in the first place? Oh, well, I have been super interested in both sustainable ag and permaculture regenerative ag fields, um, as well as forest health. Specifically, I, I had a little side passion for uh, fire ecology, uh, prescribed fire and all those different things. So when I found this program, I thought that it was kind of made for me um, in that those were two fields that I was really interested in and expand both of them. Fantastic. And can I ask, so you moved to Mendocino County for the position. Where were you coming in from? Were you, do you have some local connections? Uh, not super. I, I didn't grow up far from here, but uh, in the Bay Area. I grew up in Oakland, California um, and went to school at UC Davis and then bounced around for a couple of years post-grad. Um, and actually moved from the Tahoe region here. Great. So lots of different experiences from those different parts of California. Um, so once you landed here, um, I, you know, it sounds 
a lot that you've been managing and a lot that you've been handling because your position has been split over these two different areas. So working with Mendocino County Resource Conservation Districts and also with the Fire Safe Council. Um, could you give me a little bit more of a breakdown of maybe what those two organizations do and what you've been, uh, what kinds of main projects you've been working on in that time? Yeah, absolutely. It is, it's a cool job because they are really different organizations um, and aligned in a lot of ways, but uh, it's been super fun to see how both uh, interact with one another and with the community. So I guess just to start with the Fire Safe Council, um, the Fire Safe Council, Mendocino County Fire Safe Council is a relatively small nonprofit that's been around for a number of years, but it really has picked up steam in the last two or three or so. Um, and they just have grown exponentially in the last two years, picking up all sorts of grants and bringing in a lot of, a lot of funding to the county for wildfire preparedness projects and education and outreach, um, tons of things that they're doing over there. I um, mostly took on some of the mapping projects for the Fire Safe Council. So I worked, I worked on a couple different grants that they had going, um, but did a lot of mapping. So community emergency response maps, which are fine grain maps uh, geared towards firefighters so that they can come in and know what to expect in the community. M micro grants, that was a fun project that I worked on with them. And that was basically uh, smaller fire safe councils throughout the county were requesting some funds for just really small localized projects like developing water sources or doing a little bit of roadside clearing on important roads. Uh, so I helped develop kind of the guidelines for that program, which was super fun. Yeah, and really just a lot of mapping for the fire safe council. So Katie, if you don't mind, there's so much that you just um, touched on there that is so interesting to me. So maybe we can just start by focusing a bit more on your work with the Fire Safe Council before we move on to all the great things you've been doing with the RCD as well. It's that time of year when we are seeing many so far, and in, in my experience, it's been fairly small fires that are coming up around the county, but very much it's, it's on all of our minds. Um, <laughs> we're in fire season and we're in many cases figuring out what, what at this time of the year we could still be doing to help prepare ourselves. You mentioned two things there, and I found both of them really interesting. The first one was that mapping, the community emergency response map. And it, it strikes me that it, it's fairly common for us to perhaps feel like, well, everybody, CalFAR has all the maps or whoever, they, they have all the maps they need, right? How could we possibly make anything that's of more value to them. Um, can you help me understand what a really good map has on it that will be the most supportive for a community um, in both planning for wildfires and in the case of a wildfire? Absolutely, yeah. Those, so those community emergency response maps, they are really geared towards in the event of a wildfire. They're not so much a preparatory map. Um, but the whole idea is, is that absolutely our local fire districts do have maps of communities, but in one of those big catastrophic wildfires, uh, firefighters come in from all across the state, if not the country. And I think all of us who have lived in Mendocino know that Google Maps and other maps of this county are not quite so good. So when folks from out of state or out of county roll up at a single rural road, 
they have no idea if there's multiple structures up that road that might need defending or if there's one or if there's none. Um, so these maps, really good versions of these maps will include things like building footprints um, and then really specific things down to areas of the road that are wide enough to turn an engine around um, or alternate water sources that might be accessible but not on a major map. Um, even the idea is that these really granular, granular level uh, maps can go down to even things like marking houses where folks might need help evacuating or things like that that are just really specific to the community. So how do we work on a map? You know, I, I know that you're very capable of um, creating maps. I, I am not so much and I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, so a community member or community members may well have that granular information you're talking about that I know that somebody down the road has real problems with getting out and about the house and would really need some help in an emergency but I have absolutely no idea how I would translate that onto a map how do we make those two things fit together yeah that's a great question um well the cool thing about those maps is that they're absolutely a collaboration between a map maker and the community members and they do not work without the community members and vice versa but it's much easier to find someone to make you a map than who has those all that fine de detail but the fire safe council the mendocino county fire safe council we have made some training documents that are fairly simple so the idea being that if you have a neighborhood fire safe council or just a group of neighbors that is passionate about this um, and if even one person has some mapping experience, there are some training documents on the website that'll truly walk you through step by step of open your GIS and, you know, uh, very, very step by step instructions. And do you need do you need to have some kind of subscription to some kind of GIS package to do this? Unfortunately, those instructions are geared towards GIS just because that's what we were using when we were doing this project. Um, Honestly, I am not a mapping expert at all. Um, all my experience really has been in GIS. I know there are free versions, QGIS and other, um, probably tons more that I don't know about out there, um, but I can't really speak to that, honestly. Yeah, no, that, that's fine. So I'm interested in the projects that you have been working on, on these um, community emergency response maps. Could I ask which, which communities have you been working on those for? Yeah, so the way that uh, this happened, the reason um, is, so when I came on with the Fire Safe Council, they had a grant already in process to develop these maps for three counties in Hopland, actually, funnily enough. Um, and I came on to document the process, basically, and to make those instructions so that it can be replicated by other communities. So as of right now, um, to my knowledge, those three communities in Hopland, and I believe the South Coast fire district um, is also developing a map for their whole fire dis district, which is a huge undertaking, very impressive. Um, those are the only ones that I am personally aware of right now, um, but there very well might be others that are afoot. And would I be right in saying that if somebody was, you know, listening to this perhaps and thinking, oh gosh, that does sound like a good idea, but I, I struggle a bit to know what the next step would be if they contacted the Mendocino Fireside Council, there might be a little bit of hand-holding to support them through that process. Yeah, I would say that your first step should definitely be to reach out to your a neighborhood fire safe council. And if you're not already connected with the neighborhood fire safe council, uh, on the website, there's 
info about tracking tracking down the people that are already organized in your area or starting one if there aren't. Um, and from there, yeah, absolutely. Contact the Fire Safe Council um, and they can point you in the direction of those resources and all that. Yeah, that, I, I love the idea of these different levels of information coming together to make a really resilient community response in an emergency. Um, I think too often we imagine that that knowledge is just there somewhere, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but but we we're the ones that hold it and it has to be shared. Yeah, um, exactly. Just the communication in those situations is so often what breaks down just because it's an emergency. Um, so having really formalized way of sharing that information is is important. Katie, I'm interested as well from the whole county's perspective are there areas where it's recognized that this kind of work is needed more and i'm thinking about this partly because as somebody who lives on a a road with you know one way in one way out um it, it's it, i often think oh you know we're the kind of place that could really do with that kind of work being done we need to take that extra step because we have the situation mm -hmm. that we're in um is there a, a kind of review that's been done of the county that understands which communities need to have this work done most urgently? That's a good question. Um, there's certainly the components of that. There's different lists that have been developed, um, you know, by the uh, Board of Forestry and other folks that identify those one way in, one way out communities. Um, so there's lists that exist, but funny you should ask because we were just talking about today about how we can get that on a map and uh, begin to prioritize those locations kind of it's not worked in so far um, but you know that information's out there yeah I guess again um, it's worth us all as listeners remembering that there is a great deal of power in the individual and and in community action um, and if we feel that there is a need on our road or in our community, then it may well be that it's worth stepping up and having the conversations with your neighbors to figure that the steps out. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You should definitely go knock on some doors if that's your case. <laughs> yeah. So um Katie, that, that was the first step that I found really interesting. And then um you talked a little bit more about um, some of the, the further work you've been doing with the Fire Safe Council. Would you remind just touching on that one more time for me, some of the, the, the extra work, the community work that you've been working with on the Fire Safe Council? Sure. I think the other thing that I mentioned, just because I thought it was a fun project that I got to work on um, and a really excellent program of the Fire Safe Councils are these micro grants. Um, so essentially what they are is small grants uh, in the range of three to six thousand dollars that were awarded to either neighborhood fire safe councils or uh, volunteer fire districts around the county that had small but really locally necessary projects. Um, so I think they ended up awarding about 12 of these grants to different fire safe councils um, and fire agencies around the county, which was a fun project to get to, to see everyone's proposals. Um, and just a lot of those really great ideas that are going on out there. Yeah, how fun and how fantastic that these micro grants are available, because I imagine that frequently what happens is somebody does go out, knock on their neighbors' doors, start to have conversations as a community group about how they could be more prepared, 
And then maybe one of the first things that might come up is the need for some money or some funds to support that. In many cases, perhaps not a huge amount, but some funds. Mm -hmm. So this is an avenue that a group could consider if they recognize, maybe you could help me understand a bit more, what would the what kinds of projects might qualify for that money? Um, well, this uh, the other reason that it was an exciting project is that it was kind of a pilot program. It was the first time that they'd ever done it, and uh, they're hopeful that it'll be continuing. Um, but yeah, they they're not positive that it'll continue to exist in the future. Um, but I think it was really exciting because those small grants are not available through many other agencies. So it was kind of a niche that needed to be filled, which was cool. Um, but as for the types of projects, you know, I'm trying to pull them up now out of my the depths of my brain. And the ones that come to mind is I know there was a couple of, uh, you know, like 5,000 gallon tanks, emergency water supply um, in places that were really far out and the drive back and forth to the nearest water supply uh, was quite long. Um, a couple of, of roadside clearing projects that's very common no that's helpful just to have a sense of the kind of things that might have been a, a qualifying um and that um, we keep our fingers crossed right that maybe these funds would be available again um is there a would there a deadline this year that perhaps people might look to again for the future yeah it was last spring or late winter early spring this past year about february and march um so maybe keep an eye on the FireSafe website and subscribe to their newsletter if you aren't already, if you want to keep an eye on those things. Great. And um, Katie, I can always look this up and add it in as well, but um, is there a way, if people go on the website, can they sign up to the newsletter dead easily from there? Uh, yeah, it is right on there. I believe it's in the news tab in there somewhere. <laughs> Fantastic. That's great. Um, I know uh, I personally appreciate all this work that you've been doing. I mean, it's, it's a topic which is so close to all of us. And I think every year it gets even closer. Mm -hmm. And um, thank you for doing the work that you've been doing for this community. It, you know, it means a lot and it takes a lot of people. And um, I'm thrilled that Grizzly Corps has been involved in that effort this year. Um, so moving on a little bit, um, I'd love to hear, you know, it's kind of amazing to me that you've even achieved how much it seems that you must have achieved in a year because that project in itself sounds like somebody's full-time job. So, well, to be fair, it's really playing a small role in the whole organization doing these things. <laughs> yeah. But go ahead and can you explain to us a little bit more about some of the kinds of projects that you also were doing for the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District. Sure, yeah. Um, so the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District is kind of the other or another unsung hero, I think, of Mendocino County. Um, and they work broadly uh, with private landowners to implement best management practices related to forestry, soil, and water. Um, so this year I got to work in the soils program and so I worked really closely with the sustainable ag team here uh, doing a variety of projects, lots of workshops, uh, lots of carbon farm planning, uh, some education in elementary schools and high schools around the county, which was super fun. Um, yeah, just lots of great work going on here as well. 
So can you explain to us a little bit more about what is a carbon farm plan? I know that's something which has been worked on somewhat at our site here at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre. But um, yeah, could you tell us from scratch, what is a carbon farm plan? Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of a confusing term and I definitely learned it this year. Um, it's hopefully coming more to the mainstream vernacular. But um, essentially what a carbon farm plan is, is uh, it's two things, I guess. To begin with, it's resource inventory, an on-farm resource inventory, and it identifies resource concerns and management goals of farmers and ranchers. Um, and then the other side of that coin is it's essentially a brainstorm. And you brainstorm all of the ways that you might address resource concerns or farmer goals uh, by maximizing solar capture. And so essentially what you're doing is coming up with ideas to store carbon either as above ground biomass, soil carbon, or harvestable material. Why is this important? <laughs> Why is it valuable for us to understand the carbon assets on a property? I think that carbon farm planning is such an exciting new practice that's going on right now because it is multi-beneficial. So at its core, basically, it's taking the issue of too much atmospheric carbon and turning it into a solution of increasing our soil carbon. So in North America and broadly speaking across the world, soil carbon has been depleted over centuries um, and especially over the past two centuries of industrial scale agriculture. So we are actually lacking soil carbon um, and this, these practices are ways that we turn, turn the issue of you know, global warming, too much atmospheric carbon into uh, a multi-beneficial solution of improving our soil health. Um, and so then the counter side to that as well, and the again, other exciting aspect is that improving your soil health is improving our resilience of farmers, right? Because that's gonna improve water holding capacity and our air quality and make folks more resilient to droughts and floods and pests. So it's really a multi-beneficial practice. Um, it's, it's, so, um, it's always so refreshing, isn't it, to hear projects that are, um, you know, that make so much sense mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, look at this problem that um, is, is so scary for all of us and such a practical, um, with such practical tools. Uh, so, in creating these carbon farm plans, would you be working directly with um, landowners or land managers? Yep. Yeah. So it's it's a collaboration with the land managers of identifying places where where they have concerns or where they you know uh, would like to stretch into new practices, and then helping brainstorm and just identify those locations. Um, and then the neat thing about the the carbon farm plan is that you can take all those practices um, and quantify them to uh, amount of greenhouse gas that you would be reducing. And that's kind of a pretty powerful marketing tool for, for different producers out there to tell their story of their land management and how their stewardship is actually a solution to the climate crisis. So it's interesting to me because obviously, and you've expressed that this is a, uh, a thing that folks would, would want to share and express the value of what they're doing on their land. Um, you also mentioned that it may well be beneficial for their soil in other ways, in water retention, all kinds of things. But I'm imagining that some of these practices may come at a cost. And I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about how, 
how can a, a farmer or a land manager or a landowner, how can they start that process? And is there any support for them in perhaps making some of the investments that they might want to make in order to step a bit further forward um, in their in their carbon farm plan? Absolutely. And I think that's a really exciting thing about living here in California is that the government of California is making lots of investments um, in these climate beneficial agricultural programs. Um, so there are a number of programs that folks interested in implementing some of these practices for the first time um, could receive some financial assistance. And usually it's kind of a cost share situation. Um, but yeah, there's absolutely healthy soils program, uh, state water efficiency and enhancement program, uh, NRCS equip, many, many cost share programs out there that might fund some of these activities. And you can definitely reach out to your NRCS or RCD office. Um, and they have generally uh, can provide technical assistance on what types of programs are out there and directing it to the right place. Fantastic. And we'll share the um, contact information for those organizations at the end of the show tonight. Um, can you give me an example of what some of these uh, activities might be? <laughs> yeah, the ones that we hear about most often, um, because there's so many vineyards in at least the southern part of our county, um, and we work a lot with uh, a lot of vineyards in the Russian River Valley and the Uti or the Anderson Valley. Um, so oftentimes compost application is a huge one that has a really positive climate impact. Um, and compost application is exciting because it kickstarts that biology. And so, you know, you're encouraging all the life in the soil and creating healthier plants, which can store more carbon as, as they photosynthesize. Um, but other things that are amazing that we hear commonly are things like cover cropping, hedgerows, um, silvopasture, prescribed grazing. Uh, Could you explain what silvopasture is to me? <laughs> yeah, so silvopasture, that's an exciting one. It, it essentially is prescribed grazing um, in an area that where trees or woody shrubs are integrated. Um, so provides a bunch of benefits to livestock themselves and providing shelter and shade um, and then to soil health as well and reducing erosion by getting those big solid roots in there and stabilizing the ground um, and you know feeding the microbiome under there. You know so interesting to hear we, we, we tend to um, hear about carbon in the media so much is it the atmospheric carbon and there being too much such a problem but this concept this this method of pulling that down and thinking how you on your land could be pulling that carbon into your soil, right? Um, as you said, you've mentioned a few times these different tools and how excited you are about them. Um, it's, it's lovely to hear that and maybe just kind of stepping away from your direct project with the RCD for a second, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about you yourself. It's clear that this kind of work has you passionate. You know, you, you're excited about these different methods. Um, is this been something that's just been uh, something that you care about your whole life? When did it start? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, most most of my whole life, I've I've always been an outdoor person, so that factors in, I think. But then, uh, beginning in high school, I got involved with the community garden and restoration project. And since then, I feel like I never turned back. Um, yeah, I feel like for a lot of young folks today, and I think it probably gets increasingly worse with every generation, There's it can feel a little bit hopeless. Um, so it's always exciting to feel like 
even at an early stage in your career that you're doing something that is impactful. Which it really, really sounds like the Grizzly Core Fellowship has allowed you to do. Certainly the projects you've expressed today sound to have great impact on the community. Do you feel that yourself? I think so. I like to think so, yeah. But I, I do think Grizzly Core, I mean, their whole idea behind climate action, I think is exciting because obviously a lot of planning and preparation needs to go into any action. Um, but we are at a time when we do need to increase the workforce that are actually implementing some of these practices and putting them into play right now. Um, so I think the key there being the climate action. Um, and I think that that's a wonderful focus for a program. I'm interested, you mentioned that you've actually been working with school age kids as well <laughs> in your spare time. <laughs> what, what, what kind of programs have you been working with uh, young people in this community on? That one's so fun because it's kind of talking about all this stuff, the climate beneficial ag um, and soil health and native plants and pollinators are the three classes that we do. Um, geared towards a variety of ages. So we've been out to Fort Bragg uh, Middle School with some sixth graders out there, which was an absolute blast. Um, and then up in Laytonville with the high school and actually with the elementary summer program in Laytonville as well, uh, doing these little modules about soil health and all these different topics. That's that's so exciting. And you know, you mentioned that um, generationally um, our it, it seems perhaps more and more worrying what the future holds and that you're also talking to this, you know, the, the next generation too. Um, do you feel like there's a sense of hope in offering these lessons to them and thinking about all the positive things we can be doing? Absolutely. I mean, at the very least, I think it's so cool that we're talking to sixth graders about the soil microbiome because I definitely didn't learn about that. Um, so yeah, in it in and itself, I think just that having these conversations for a young age are amazing. These kids are growing up with uh, like climate literacy that a lot of us didn't have, I don't think, until we were older. Um, and yeah, it's not it's not it's not a hopeless act for sure. It's exciting and. You know, I think sharing a little bit of passion and excitement about this with, with young kids is what possibly might get them interested to be part of the solution as they go forward. So I'm fascinated. Um, would you mind sharing just quickly, how do you get sixth graders excited about the soil microbiome? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, worms. Worms are a good way in. Everyone likes worms. Um, and then... It's also fun because you get to talk about poop being a good thing and <laughs> that always get a kick out of that. <laughs> and do you feel like quite quickly they move from thinking, oh gosh, soil, this sounds boring to maybe getting much more engaged and excited about what you're talking about then? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's interesting too, just kind of what comes into popularity right now, you know, mushrooms. And like little kids love to doodle mushrooms and frogs and a whole bunch of creatures that really do kind of like live underground. Um, so that has been kind of a neat uh, connection that we made. Every, yeah, everyone knows what mycorrhizae are and uh, can talk to you about hyphae and things like that, which is awesome. Have you made a TikTok video? <laughs> no, no, <man. laughs> not yet. 
Not away. <laughs> maybe, maybe next year. So, Katie, this is you drawing to the end of your grizzly pool. Typically, they're a year long. Is that correct? Yeah, it's an 11 month program. And am I also right in thinking there are other grizzly pool members which are similarly doing fantastic things in different communities right across the state? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Super exciting things. Mostly centered kind of in northern and central California at the moment with a few folks down south. Um, and yeah, people right in our very own county doing doing lovely things. So it's an exciting community to be a part of. Do you stay connected with those other um, Grizzly Corps members and kind of share your experiences? Yeah, Grizzly Corps does a great job of kind of facilitating those relationships. And it's actually only the second year of the program. So the first year that was not in complete COVID times, only partial. Um, so we all have had the chance to meet up a couple of different times, which has been a total blast. That's really wonderful. Um, of course, since you're drawing to the end of this, I'm really interested in hearing what you're going to go into next. Yeah, I am very excited that I'm going to be actually staying in the county. Um, I'm going to be continuing to work uh, with the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District that is absolutely fantastic news. How wonderful that you've um, had this position for a year and now um, are able to stay in the county for our, for, I'm thinking selfishly. I mean, I hope that you enjoy it too, but um, certainly it sounds like um, we, we are very lucky to have you sticking around. And will you be carrying on working in these same kinds of areas or is there a specific focus you'll have from this point onwards? Um, a little bit of both. And yeah, I absolutely, I'm, I'm so excited that I got the opportunity to stay. Um, I got very lucky in that. Um, but yeah, I will be continuing to work in the soils program, um, but I'll also be branching into working in the Navarro watershed program, um, working on some stream flow enhancement projects over there with one of my, my coworkers, Linda McAuley. That's fantastic. What kinds of things have you outside of this grizzly composition and all the work that we've talked about? Tell me some things that you've loved about Mendocino County. <laughs> Ooh, I've loved many things. Um, one thing I've really loved from this year is getting to get slightly involved in the fiber shed cohort up here. That's been an exciting thing. I'm super from the city, but living at Atrex this past year and being around lots and lots of baby lambs said something <laughs> to you. <laughs> so that's been fun. Um, yeah, just lots of explorations. I spent lots of times in the redwoods over the winter, um, some trips to the coast. I yeah, it's a it's a super neat community to be a part of. Well, just to finish up, Katie, I suspect that we will have you back on the Ecology Era in the future um, to hear more about um, how your projects are continuing. I'm certainly keen to find out um, how things go as as you progress in this position. But um, I'm sure I don't just speak for myself, but for the whole county, for all of our listeners and saying thank you so much for doing that grizzly call position this year and um, for doing all the great work that you have been doing to support our communities in the face of climate change and um, in response to fire, the wildfires in our area. Well, we look forward to hearing from you again. And thank you again for all your time. Yeah, thank you. This was very fun. <laughs> Well, thank you so much to Katie Smith from Grizzly Corps and the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District for the great project she's been working on. And it's exciting to hear that this will continue into our future. If you would like to learn more about community wildfire resilience in Mendocino County, visit firesafemendocino.org.
To learn more about creating a carbon farm plan, take a look at mcrcd.org. Katie mentioned carbon farm planning in our conversation and we'll finish tonight's show with a look at a project associated with a carbon farm plan at the UC Hopland Research and Extension Centre with Director John Bailey. The project is a hedgerow. I started by asking John to describe this project. Yeah, we've installed a uh, 400-foot hedgerow using native California plants, and it stretches along one of our roads just outside the center. It's a great spot for education, and we put it on one of our rangeland pastures uh, because we're really trying to demonstrate how you can increase biodiversity on your rangeland. Um, I think the inspiration was just looking around at Hopland and seeing where we've had sheep for 70, 80, 100 years, um, the, the sheep are great at reducing fine fuels and great for grazing in that circumstance. They also can really take down a lot of vegetation. And so just thinking about how do we increase the diversity of our site, this opportunity came up where the California Healthy Soils Program has these grants to demonstrate different practices on your property that sequester carbon and then also have other goals like increasing biodiversity. So uh, this was right at the beginning of the coronavirus and all of us were locked away at home. And I said, well, let's just go for it. <laughs> Great time to write a grant, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned um, that you were hoping that this will increase biodiversity um, in the area where the hedgerow is. What other benefits are there from, from the... Um, addition of this hedgerow or that you hope might happen? Well, so one of the things that the uh, California Healthy Soils Program is aiming to do is increase carbon sequestration on a variety of agricultural operations around the state. And so really one of the goals is to increase the carbon in the soils. The way that happens with hedgerows and with all kinds of plants is that they absorb sunlight, they convert it, they absorb CO2 and um, sunlight and convert that into sugars and then they transport those sugars down into the ground and develop roots. We've also been learning in the last couple of decades that they're sharing those carbohydrates with other life in the soil that then takes that carbon basically and spreads it out in different layers of the soil. So um, increased soil carbon is one. Increased soil health because those plants are feeding this, this microflora and fauna in the soil. Um, and then above ground, there's a lot of other benefits too. So one is um, increased habitat and food sources for birds, for uh, small reptiles, for uh, small and large mammals, uh, and for pollinator species. So those are all benefits that we're really looking at. It's pretty exciting to hear all these things that this, this one addition hopefully will make on the site. Do you have... Um... A method that you're hoping to actually you know I know that your site is a, a research site so often folks are trying to take measurements associated with any change that takes place so do you have any ways that you're hoping to measure to see the change that this hedgerow might make on the landscape? Yeah so um, one of the things that we've done here is we've uh, set up the treatment which is the hedgerow and then we have a control area adjacent which is the uh, uh, just great uh, grazing land so nothing new planted there and so then that way we can really measure the differences 
And one of the things that we're looking at is soil carbon. So we did uh, soil tests in both the treatment hedgerow area and the control grazing area. Uh, and then we'll do those annually throughout the life of this three-year project. And then uh, we're also doing bird surveys once in the fall and once in the spring so that we capture both local native species and migrants. Uh, and then we're doing pollinator surveys four times a year, once in the early spring, once in the late spring, once in the summer, and once in the fall. There's just not a lot of pollinators out there in the winter. We did a first year winter survey and there was like nothing on the plants. So, um, and it's great because we've been able to bring in, um, you know, expertise. So we have uh, Chuck Vaughn, who is a longtime birder in the area, uh, was a former re uh, staff research associate here at Hopland doing the bird surveys. Uh, and then our own staff research associate, Allison Smith, is doing the, the soil samples and sending those off to labs. Uh, and then we've got Dr. Gordon Frankie from Berkeley, and he and his team are doing the pollinator surveys. And they've got great expertise. I mean, oh, my God, it's so hard to, like, classify different bees. I mean, they just have to look with a microscope and have all this different knowledge about how many hairs above that joint. So I'm really glad we've got these other people on board. It's not just honeybees and yellow jackets out there, is it? There's right. a whole load more to it. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested. So you've had to start this hedgerow from scratch pretty much, right? Right. So has it gone smoothly? Do you have already this flourishing big hedgerow? Where are you at at this stage? Um, I'd say in general it's going well. I think uh, one of the difficult things is to make the right plant choices. And what we're really trying to do is demonstrate hedgerows. So I didn't want to just do like one type of plant and do six, you know, six different plants mixed for the whole length um, because people had different sites. So you might have a dry hot site with really rocky soil or you might have a more riparian site where you've got access to water and it's a little cooler. So mm -hmm. what we tried to do is uh, create a demonstration where you've got areas that are chaparral species, areas that are more riparian species. Um, mostly we're using local natives but um, we also do uh, bring in a few natives from different areas of the state because there's a whole range of benefits of different species across the state. We've had a, f a few more plant failures than I was hoping. You know, that just happens. And so in the budget, we allocated a bunch of money to buy plants up front and then have more money to do replacements for the first couple of years. Um, so we're having to do a little bit more of that than I hoped. And then also there's just... Um, differing opinions you know you get some experts in a room and they're going to have like all different opinions uh, and so the pollinator guy really wants pollinator species and the local plant people really want local native species and uh, and then there's some species that are uh, better for other benefits that I didn't even mention earlier like uh, shade for your animals windbreaks uh, to stabilize the soil and hold back erosion to form a physical barrier. So if you really just wanted to plant the hedgerow to keep your animals from moving somewhere. Um, and so negotiating through all those different opinions and then making some final decisions and then actually finding the plants. Um, you know, the first year we weren't able to find some species because during coronavirus, so many people were working on their home gardens that nurseries were like sold out of everything. Wow. So that was a, an unexpected challenge. But So I'm, I'm guessing that one of the things that makes your site and this project a great project for folks is that you're seeing these problems and then you're sharing out 
how you deal with them because these problems are the kind of things that right. anybody could deal with, right? Yep, yep. So, and that's one of the things about this is that it's a demonstration project, and so we really are trying to layer in that education component wherever we can. So we've done a couple of webinars already. I'm going to be presenting at the EcoFarm conference in January. Uh, we're working with this group, FiberShed, that really tries to create sustainable um, fiber ecosystems from production through to finished product. Uh, and so we're, we've got a newsletter article coming out about that. We're going to present at their conference where we're really targeting other uh, sheep producers in the area. So that education part is really important. And, and then so full transparency of like, yeah, we screwed up this. We'd never picked that plant again. Or, you know, here's some considerations for your site. Yeah. And I guess it depends on the the individual site. And also perhaps you said that you have these different experts in the room and different people have different views on things. And that would be the same for a landowner, right? Or a land manager. That they may have something that there is their kind of personal priority and they want to see. And that's maybe how they'll do some of their plant selection a little bit more too. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I mean, it's... it's uh, good to have thick skin when you're working on a project with a lot of collaborators or you're putting it out to the public view because you know i've had people come out and they're like what the hell are you guys doing with this like you've got like a riparian species and a chaparral what are you doing and it's like well we're demonstrating what you can do and and it made it a little more complicated because you know setting up an irrigation system that will manage dry land plants who only want maybe water once in the summer if at all and then others that are going to want more regular irrigation mm -hmm. so um that was a little bit of an extra challenge of just grouping those but um i think it's worth it yeah definitely and at the moment you so what you're seeing from the hedgerow now is that yes some plants haven't made it but otherwise you're seeing things growing up well and and coming along yeah yeah i think one of the bigger disappointments is uh we we planted these coffee berry plants which are great because they're they're drought tolerant they're really good for pollinators, uh, and they're also a dye plant, and they're just kind of sitting there, not doing very much. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we can replace them with some more coffee berry that thrive. Probably, you know, in some cases it's worth investing in the five-gallon plants, mm -hmm. even though they're more expensive because you get, like, two years jump start. Mm -hmm. uh, so we might look at some of that here, too. I can imagine it's also been a challenge in setting this up in a, a horrific drought year. Right, yeah, and, and I mean... It is, and luckily we have a really good spring here at Hopland, and so we're able to irrigate. But we did go for, you know, just really good drip emitters um, and are really trying to be judicious in how much water we put out. Mm -hmm. And then we also, in the planting design, did sheet mulch to block weeds and then a couple layers of mulch on top of that of compost and wood chips, which really helps any evaporation from the soil. Mm -hmm. So the water that you put on the plant really stays and nourishes that plant. Excellent, because again, it's the expectation is that landowners who might be thinking of putting these plants in on there, they'll be facing a similar future. So very right. drought tolerant and practices that consider drought tolerance are going to be important, right? Yeah, and that's partially why we did uh, California Natives. I mean, just in general, if you're going to increase biodiversity in your area, putting in plants that thrive in that area and have evolved with the pollinator species so that when those plants flower, it's at the right time in the life cycle of the pollinator, that's important. Um, but also most California Natives are drought tolerant. Mm -hmm. So even when I'm talking about more riparian plants, um, like snowberry or elderberry, um, they don't have high water requirements. Mm -hmm. So we're not trying to grow like a lush garden of bamboo or something like that. So it's funny because from coming from England, I think of hedgerows, I, we're very, I'm very used to hedgerows being around and they're used as a, 
um, a barrier to stop your sheep or you stop getting out and they're quite likely to be thorny and very difficult to get through and what I see here is quite a different thing but you can be using these hedgerows to stop the stock from getting out or would you always have it coupled with a fence and I guess my other question that goes along with that is do the stock browse the hedgerow? What, what what other ways can it interact with the stock? Right. So so we definitely fenced this area, um, and we'll probably leave it up in the long run because we did put in species that you might not want to have in a grazing area because they're just going to get decimated by the by the livestock. Um, but then there are other plants that we put in that could be barrier plants. So. Like here on the coast, we have coast whitethorn, and we have buckbrush, and we have California uh, rose, and those are really thorny plants that will weave together and make this mesh. So that was one of those demonstration things of there's ways you can increase biodiversity with natives and have something that your sheep won't browse. And then there's other things where you might want to fence off an area and you already have a fence because you, you want a barrier from your neighbor and it's just easy to put in a hedgerow there. Mm-hmm. So, um, w- But in our case, we'll probably leave it up so that this can be a long-term demonstration of different possibilities. Excellent. So if you had, um, and I'm aware that there is going to be opportunities for um, folks who think they might be interested in adding a hedgerow to their land, um, we're, ho- we're hoping to do an actual field day where folks can visit in the spring at some point. Um, but if you had like the top three tips that you'd give somebody who was considering this, and I know you've covered some of them in the conversation so far, but what would you say those might be? I think you'd really have to look at what your site could tolerate and what resources you have to put into it. So if you don't have irrigation, that's going to be a, a big difference. So really making sure do you, if I have water, great, I can take this subset of plants. Mm-hmm. Um, what are my goals? Like, am I really focusing on just pollinators? Because mm-hmm. if I am, well, then I'm going to choose a different suite of plants mm-hmm. than if I'm trying to make a physical barrier. Um, those would be a couple of main ones. Um, you know, money is always a, an issue. So um, the more intensive of a planting that you do and the more you have to fence it, the more money it's going to cost. So if, you, if you're really tight on budget, well, you're going to want plants that don't require irrigation, that are going to stand up to browsing. Um, and then if you're trying to create a certain effect, like you want to block the view from the neighbor's place or you want to provide shade for your animals. So really like figuring out what are your resources that you have? What are your goals to achieve? Um, and then I really think, especially in California, making sure that you take into account low maintenance and, um, and water savings. So a drip irrigation system that's not creating a lot of weeds around your whole site and um, mulching heavily because that's really going to help both the soil health mm. and keep the plant roots cool and help conserve water mm. and block weeds. So I, I, I'm happy that you brought that budget because I'm, um, I'm keen to understand whether this could be uh, financially beneficial for somebody. Um, you mentioned a grant that you access for this. Is that something that would be available to others? I mean, I can imagine somebody um, would be fascinated by this and keen to um, have these beneficial um, elements on their landscape, but it would be a challenge financially. Right. So um, there's a really good book out there that's um, Hedgerows for California Agriculture. And the California Alliance of Family Farmers puts it out and it talks a lot about budgeting concerns and costs and all Um I think that there's also good pots of money out there from different government sources 
to help increase the working land's health and ecosystem function. So, um, like, if you go to your local USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service office, they have an ECOP program, which is Environmental Quality Incentive Program, mm -hmm. and um, they will do cost share up to 75% to implement different practices on your landscape. And then the California Healthy Soils Program also does implementation grants where they will help pay for implementing practices on your property, including covering some of your labor. Mm -hmm. So um, I think those are some really good sources for it. In terms of economic benefit, um, if you're a strict grazing operation and you're trying to eke out any amount of money you can just from your sheep um, or your cattle, uh, that it would be probably difficult to economically justify that way. Mm. Um, but there are ways that you can plant plants that have an economic return. So like we've put in um, blue elderberry, which you can harvest and there's a, a fairly good price point for those, those products. Um, you can also plant other floral species where you might be able to sell the, the flowers. Uh, and then there's various herbal species that you can incorporate into your hedgerow. So, you know, you don't have to go with California natives. I mean, those, if you're really trying to go for ecosystem benefits, it's probably best to go with natives but you could incorporate and build hedgerows out of other plants that have marketable crops that come mm. off of them. Mm, that's exciting and it's amazing just all the things that you've talked about that this hedgerow will hopefully be able to do. It's it's very multifunctional, isn't it? It's pretty exciting. Yeah, well, and like you said, there's a huge history. I mean, in England, yeah, you, you, they just grow. You get rainfall there, so it's easier. Um, but, you know, hedgerows have been used in agriculture for years to, like, block wind, to, to change the microclimates in your area, to, to provide physical barriers for the movement of animals. Uh, and so it's a it's an age-old practice. I mean, it was really kind of cool looking around, especially when I was working on designing the sign and just seeing there's like organizations in Ireland that are just all about hedgerows and let's plant them and let's go out and volunteer on the weekend and just put hedgerows in. And um, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely a, a worldwide practice. I know that one of the skills that um, I hear about back in the UK is hedge laying and just kind of weaving it together and getting that barrier together is like an ancient and incredible skill, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. So um, just to finish off, I one of the things you mentioned early in the conversation was that you recognize that having sheep in an area can have an impact on the biodiversity in these, you know, in these rangeland areas. Are there other things, other tools that you're trying to use to help to balance that out? Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting to, to hear from some of the rangeland ecologists that we work with that rotational grazing actually will increase the biodiversity of your pastures. So it's not that, that livestock are detrimental overall, um, but that rotational aspect is important. And so um, setting up your property where you can rotate your animals through different pastures and not have them everywhere all the time mm -hmm. is, is a great way to increase biodiversity on your property. So, um, you know, cross fencing in some areas or using electrical fences to do exclosures. Um, so maybe you have like a riparian area that once a year, it's really good to get your sheep in there and help clear out some of the thatch so plants can grow up. Um, and that's kind of what we're finding on the rangelands in general is that by bringing in the livestock and pulses, you're imitating the old ecosystem function of herds of elk or deer that would then get moved from area to area by predators. And, and then that way the plants, they get browsed down, 
they have a chance to regenerate when the animals are gone. They'll generate new roots in the soil. And then when the animals come through and graze, it will stimulate root growth in the soil and, and then stimulate new growth on the surface. So um, it's really uh, key to, to make sure that you're managing your livestock in a way that helps your property at the same time as earns a, a living for you. Well, fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing the information. We look forward to hearing more about the hedgerow as you get more measurements and hear more about the how the biodiversity has increased. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much to our folks who joined this evening, Heather Podol from the nonprofit Fibershed, and also to John Bailey from the UC Hopland Research and Extension Centre. If you'd like to find out more about your Fibershed, you can take a look on the Fibershed website at www.fibershed.org. And you could also reach out to your local resource conservation district or NRCS office, where you can find out more about some of the grants that may be available to support you if you'd like to add a hedgerow on your garden or ranch. Thanks so much for listening to this evening's edition of the Ecology Hour, and I look forward to speaking with you again next month. Please remember that if you have any comments about the programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit us at our Facebook page at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre, or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Hopland Rec. Or you could always send me an email, hbird, H-B-I-R-D, at U-C-A-N-R dot E-D-U. We'd love to hear from you and find out what you'd like to be hearing on the Ecology Hour into the future. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Ecology Hour this evening. If you would like to learn more about community wildfire resilience in Mendocino County, visit farsafemendocino.org. To learn more about creating a carbon farm plan, take a look at mcrcd.org and you'll find information on their website about how to start the carbon farm planning process. There's a great guide to hedgerow planting care and benefits on the Community Alliance with Family Farmers or CAF website. Take a look at that website at caff.org forward slash ecological farming forward slash hedgerows. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the Ecology Hour next week. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.